Welcome to Ojai Talk of the Town. This episode, we go into the current issue of the Ojai Quarterly to look deeper into a very complicated and difficult issue, affordable housing. This in-depth story involved months of research and was written by Michelena Johnson, a doctoral candidate in the Environmental Sciences Department at UC Santa Cruz. A hometown product, Johnson has been writing about the big issues in Ojai since her high school years. Hey, Michelena. Hi, Brett. How are you? Good, good. Good. So, um, eager to talk to you. I um, a little bit. Uh, that was your work on a story about the cost of home in this current issue of Ojai Quarterly, which uh, is a very comprehensive look at a very complicated issue. And I thought I'd just start off by asking you how you got interested in this topic. Yeah. So first of all, thanks for the opportunity to to publish the piece. It was definitely a, a big endeavor. And um, the story found its roots actually in my return from Washington, D.C. after I moved back from doing a fellowship for a year there. I <laughs> was kind of uh, awestruck in a new way at the cost of housing in the Valley and um, noticed that it was nearly on par with the Bay Area and in some cases more expensive than the D.C. Um, I did my undergraduate in the Bay Area and, um, you know, my, my friends and I in town, specifically my, my friends from high school, from Nordoff, uh, were commiserating about um, how nearly impossible it was to find a place sort of on our own, um, or in some cases, even with friends. And for, um, you know, for my, like, friends who had kids, it was like... Your peer group. Yeah, basically, for my peer group. Like, even those with kids, it was like even more of a monumental feat. And um, I, at the time, was also working for... Um, Dr. Andrea Neal, and she, I, she and I raised this topic, and she sort of inspired and pushed me to investigate the story more and provide a more comprehensive um, picture of it. So this story is the product of that. Yeah, um, this is, she's head of the Island Foundation. We have a little note at the end of the story. It doesn't really explain what that's all about. Maybe you can tell us a little more. Yeah, I wanted to give a little feedback on that and then also um, note that the organization itself has sort of morphed into a new endeavor. Um, so organization was founded a few years ago by a group of activists in town, mostly women who were concerned um, about the impacts of climate change on a regional scale. And they desired to see the United Nations development goals realized and sort of translated um, into a local context. So the focus of the organization was on how can we sort of provide sustainable resources to the community, specifically food, water, and energy. Um, I've sort of written about and reported on different ways that that can be accomplished and, and um, on a local level, but the in part due <laughs> to the pandemic and in part um, due to the reason that when they started the Ohio Island Foundation, um, 
uh, Andrea, Piper Presley, and some others realized that there were a lot of environmental groups who had similar agendas to their vision. So they've since, you know, remained true to these values, but also have been thinking yeah, about collaborating and combining efforts and yeah, yeah, I that think, sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting. They want to start an organization called, um, I've written down here, but anyway, they want to start an organization, a business basically that collects plastic out of the ocean and makes it profitable. Oh, yeah. So use it for energy like generation. That, uh, what was that young man's name who invented some kind of a uh, sweep for the, you know, the, the plastic goes all up and down the column of water. The plastic sort of break down into this gel and motion, mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of it that's floating on top in this big, big raft or gyre out in the middle of the ocean. And he invented this big like boom that sw- basically sweeps it up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. Three or four years ago, he was only like 17 years old when he invented this device. He was like 19 when he got a bunch of venture capital. And I know he had some issues with the actual mechanics of it, but he did get that thing to work. And I wish I had a better information, but that's getting a little off topic. Let's get back to um, sure. Ohio housing. Now, you did a lot of research. You went deep into the census data and a lot of the other, um, you know, housing elements and, and plans. And what what was what did you find when you were digging in there? Were there any surprises or did you look around at the situation and go, oh, yeah, I mean, this is what's going on. It's expensive to live here. I mean, I think the numbers really drive that point home. I that there was a lot that stood out to me. Uh, The first was the fact that um, women in single headed households, you know, so basically like women who live alone or with kids or are the main breadwinners of their household um, carry disproportionate shelter burden than other people in town. Um, So we have here, you know, the housing element reporting that about 11% of owner occupied households and 18% of rentals within the city limits are headed by women, while female-headed households represent a relatively small portion of all households. They often have special challenges of balancing work and childcare responsibilities. Yeah, especially now. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine having to work from home while your children are home, young children, and to keep up with their schooling and not having, you know, the electronic infrastructure, the you know, the computers and the good Wi-Fi to, to make this, it's got to be just really, really difficult. I, I mean, you I did have, mention your yeah. friend in there, uh, or I don't know if she's your friend, but you had a source of a lady in her mid-20s and customer service, and it was really, uh, that is sort of, that's like what brings that data home when you get into somebody's personal, you know, their, their anecdote. The more specific the, the situation is the more everyone can relate to it. I thought that was a really well done piece of the story that uh, lady talking about how difficult it is for her as a single mom trying to find a place. One thing I was, she said that they wouldn't rent to her because she has a, a child when they would rent to her if she had a pet. And I, is that legal? Is that like, how does that even? 
a soft uh, refusal or is it explicit on the, like rental applications? Do you know? I mean, I don't know. I think that's a great question. And I, I think that her story is illustrative of this larger need to have a real and honest conversation about who is discriminated against in access to affordable housing. Um, generally, you know, rental applications, at least that I've filled out, have required me um, to provide proof of income. And they'll only rent to you if you have a certain, um, like if the rent covers, if, if your income basically covers a certain portion of the rent. So something like, you know, your income has to be three times higher than the annual total of the rent or something like that. It can be very difficult for people. And then in those cases, often it's required that if that's not the case, you have to have a guarantor. Um, And some people don't have that, right? They don't have a relative who makes enough money to be able to cover that. And there's also discrimination against um, certain people's like occupations against, in this case, um, having a dependent so, yeah, I mean, having um, in some cases, it could be against someone's um, like immigration status, even their like if they have a disability or not, you know, these things are really important to talk about. And someone who's elderly, I think that was another component that really stuck out to me. I mean, in this society, we do not have a social network that sustains elderly people, you know, the expectation is that a person has been able over the course of their lifetime to save up enough money so that they have maybe investments or savings they can pull from and then social security, which a cushion. And like so many people don't have a cushion. I mean, the number of elderly Uh, people. Exactly. Yeah. That's like, there's this, uh, a very American perception and it's not entirely wrong that whatever are due to your and what and by the same token your failures are due to your lack of smarts or something as though it were as though luck had next of your you know growing up and your parents and everything else the best predictor of a person's wealth is their parents wealth Mm. that's just straight up fact all across history you want to know where somebody's going to end up. You got to understand where, where they started from. And it's like, there's uh, this idea that that's all this social mobility that you can just get to wherever you want to go just by putting your nose to the grindstone. And that's true, but that's not all of it. I mean, your um, opportunities that are presented to you when you have wealthy parents are much greater. Yeah. And, Can I add two points to that? Sure. Um, Yeah. The first one that comes to mind is I actually, as as background for this article, when I was trying to find um, sort of people to be the the face of it and to talk about their lived experiences, I approached a number of um, single retired women, um, several of whom sort of deal with health issues and as happens generally when people get older And they said they weren't, first of all, comfortable having their story out there because our society so much stigmatizes a person being older, female, and broke. Like, and 
you know, wait a minute. That's, that's two thirds of Ojai. <laughs> I mean, you look um, around right? the town. It's like, that's the demographic. There's, uh, it's just, you know, the people who do our social infrastructure and go to the, the meetings. And, and I mean, it's really like, it's unfortunate that they feel that way. I feel like that's the heart of Ojai is the people of, you know, that just work together to get by and, Mm-hmm. And they can carve out nice lives without having to have a lot of, lot of wealth. Well, a lot of, you know, people don't understand that, like having a lot of things that burdens you down. Like at a certain point in your life, things, you don't own things, things own you. And it's like mm-hmm. being free of those attachments and being able to get by modestly, your level of happiness can be increased. But I know that's not what we're talking about. That's just a more general point. So it was difficult for you to find people that wanted to speak specifically to their situations because they're afraid they're being stigmatized. Is that what you're what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's what I'm getting at. And um, in addition to that, there's a, you know, when a person talks about their housing situation, you know, there's often a need to be honest about other aspects of their personal life that they probably don't want to have to share, you know, about their you know, when that calls into account, um, their family situations, their income, which has to do with their job and job security, you know, there's all these other aspects then of a person's life that are drawn in. And I think if you're talking about someone who's older, you sort of add to that, um, you know, how nearby is their family? How supportive is their family? It's a lot of aspects that a person, would in talking to me um have to be vulnerable about and you know i can understand someone not wanting that story out there but but to me that that skepticism that reticence to share their story was also emblematic of this larger silence in our society about um these topics and and how some people even though we live in a very caring community that I think has a strong local network, um, including through help of Ojai to support folks who, you know, on a month to month basis might not have the money to meet all of their basic needs. We still need a conversation, like an honest and ongoing conversation about these topics at a systemic level so that we can understand and destigmatize the, you know, sort of like people's shame around these things and be yeah, able to address some of the issues, you know, that, that shame, yeah. I think prevents us from having a real honest conversation about, about what's going on. Thank goodness. You were able to dig up a lot of data that, that backs that up. I mean, didn't, didn't we, didn't there's calculation that to stay uh 30% of your housing costs, 30% is the accepted threshold for what you should be spending on housing were to buy the very cheapest homes in Ojai, you'd have to be making well over 100, like 120,000. I forget what the number was, but 120,000 just to own a home in Ojai at the very lower end. And think about that. That's um, not, what, how many jobs are there in Ojai, local jobs that pay that kind of money? Very, very few. Even yeah, you know, I know a lot of small business owners who would love to make that much money, and they work hard and they have great lives. But 
you know, they were only able to own homes because they got here a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That's the only way. It seems like people are getting squeezed out. The people who provide that social infrastructure, not to mention, you know, we always talk about the police and the teachers who who are so key to the community that can't afford to live here that are commuting in and out. And of all the evidence you ever need is to just head out Highway 33 towards Ventura in the morning and see those long lines of traffic snaking all the way through. And then come about 4.30 or 5, that choke point at Casita Springs. Once again, there's that another long line of traffic. And so many problems that get bound up in, in people not being able to afford to live where they work. There's many problems that go along with that, not the least of which is the air pollution, which you did talk about in the, in the story that we have a higher rate of particulate matter than other places. And that's why, that's why I'm certain that that's due to the, because there's no industry up here really that's spewing smokestacks. So yeah. our, our pollution comes from, you know, a closed basin with all that traffic spewing hydrocarbons into the air that's what's going on yeah Yeah, it's a real concern and when i was interviewing um councilman ryan blatz he raises the point that you know part of the issue was we just haven't invested enough in um sort of like local infrastructure and incentive to have companies um especially startups stay in the area so you know look at how job sort of extends beyond education, leisure, and tourism would probably benefit the Valley. The exact ways to do that though. I still, um, I still wonder. Yeah, I, I know. I have it's answers like for that one. Weather, but. You know, they, what they say about the weather is that everybody talks about it and nobody does anything. And that's, that's what's the same with housing. We talk about this so much. Now, there are people making efforts. I uh, know uh, Nicholas Outway, who's a mm-hmm. fellow Rotarian, although he's in the other club. He had some beautiful drawings of a really lovely project for Franklin Street, which would be, you had it in the story, I forget, five units? Was it five dwellings on this uh, two-thirds of an acre? Or maybe it was a yep, full acre. Yep, I don't five. Know. Yeah, two bedroom units, two 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 bedroom units, two one bedroom units, and a studio and a shared community space and the space for spaces for four cars. Yeah, now that would be kind of like a little housing pocket where people, you know, uh, live in relatively close proximity, but they have their privacy. They have off street parking. They've got well, not a lot of off street parking. Obviously, five units with four spaces, but I. Th- feel like that's getting closer to a solution that there's, you know, some scale that makes it more affordable. Now, these places ended up being relatively expensive to get built if they ever do get built. You know, if there's an enterprising developer out there, there's plans already and the city permits are basically in place and somebody can start in on this project right away. But the problem is that it's just really expensive to build here in Ohio for a lot of reasons. 
Yeah, Johnny Johnson, um, our current mayor, mentioned that the price tag is about half a million dollars per unit, which would make, you know, once the units uh, were built, keeping rent down really difficult. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one when you're talking specifically about affordable housing within the approximately four square miles that comprise Ojai because we have already very limited land on which to build. And because there is this small amount of space, you have to, um, like, land prices are already high. So, yes. yeah, it's a really tricky one. Exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I have not seen anything under to build in Ohio, basically something like 300 and something dollars a square foot, which means, you know, 12 or 1300 square foot home is going to be half a million dollars. And that's not a big grand home at all. Now, there's some other ideas. And one thing I know a lot of my friends who are very involved in the community, they don't like to hear the word density. But that infill, urban infill, mm-hmm. is that I don't know how you can get around that. And, and the virtues of urban infill are you have everybody living in a pretty close space. They're not having to commute and drive around and, and they can walk everywhere they're going. And, you know, they're um, much, it's greener than having some big spread out in the exurbs or suburbs. And having to drive in and drive on all the traffic that goes along with just your your daily life, so I don't know. I don't know what what the answer is, but I imagine uh, it's going to be some. It would have to be some some kind of hybrid. Going to have to accept some urban infill. We're also going to have to accept that we're a car culture and that people going to want to drive. I was trying to think of a way to somehow combine visions that people told me during this article, you know, cause I heard, um, you know, sort of Nicholas and, um, Bill Miley and others talk more about, yeah, sort of like infill the need for like sharing cars. So you have that this vision more of like communal spaces, um, which I think is a step away from sort of this like private property, sort of what you're talking about, sort of like more materialistic owning a lot of things. Yeah. Um, man's home is this castle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instead, we can sort of divide up the castle and have the kingdom shared. Um, I was also thinking in terms of Vina. I know, the shared housing. Three, four families, they combine uh, resources to a nice place, you know, this is Copenhagen or wherever. Um, Just for example, and, you know, they have like the chore wheel and who's doing the cooking or cook that person will be the cook who's the best uh, daycare person those are the ones that are gonna watch the kids and make sure they get up to school and then all their homework is attended to and that seems like um i don't know that that would work here i think it might work in oh i bet you that there's situations like that already on an informal basis in fact i sort of know know of those where three or four families kind of combine resources and and efforts to um you know, live well, uh, much more economically. Yeah, that economic part. Um, it's definitely a rising trend in the Bay Area. You see a lot of like families are buying homes together 
And I think it's a great way to foster community. It's just difficult in COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's like sure. probably not the kind of setup you want during these yeah, days, but, but can, in general, you can, uh, set, you can make your, you can make your bubble with a little bit of testing and, mm-hmm. and so forth. But again, that goes against the America of having your big spread. You know, I that's the problem. Yeah, I I would also say though that I think California housing policy is already moving in that direction. Um, can I read this to you? Uh, sure. What What is this from? So we have. Oh, it's from the. Pacific Policy Institute. Um, I think I got that acronym wrong. Public Policy Institute of California. It's the report that I cite in the study. Um, it's a wonderful report. This one is their most recent edition. Uh, came out in January 2020. I highly recommend any listener to, to look it up and read the four pages of it. But just one thing to list here. It says California's passed legislation that aims to lower harmful emissions by encouraging coordination of new housing development with transportation networks at the local level, um, sort of infill development. Yeah. Yeah. So basically it says that there's basically this whole thing articulates a need more towards infill towards reducing traffic and making housing more affordable by having basically state policies that intervene at a local level. Um, and it's saying that local and state legislator like legislation and um policymakers need to work together to create housing affordability for all people it recognizes that as of 2017 there was about a deficit of like 2.5 million homes across the state in a um, state with how many there's only like 12 million households or something so it's basically saying that there's a 20 percent there's 20% fewer house, housings, houses than we need for our, our population. That's a staggering number. Just think about that. There's 20% gap. Yeah. And yeah. We don't even know. I mean, because that drives everything underground. These are, you know, that 20% of people are, you know, all kinds of situations. Uh, most of them probably off grid or not. Uh, optimal or even illegal in some of these uh, backyard additional dwelling units and very Mm -hmm. very interesting it is and you talk to people who are i'm 25 so you talk to people who are my age and there's this concern about how are we going to afford our home you know like people around my age are starting to think about you know long-term job security and you know planning for a career that'll hopefully enable them to afford a house. But I also mentioned in this article too, like if you're trying to pay off student debt, car debt, um, or if you're supporting your, your family, whether they're, you know, elsewhere or like directly local to you, these sort of like economic um, outputs monthly make it really hard to even begin to afford like a house payment, especially if you're trying to also pay your own rent. It seems so out of reach just completely out of reach it's pretty colossal and then i was also thinking about um you know people who are 30s and 40s you know that's when our society says you're supposed to be saving for retirement while also raising your family while you know and it's just especially with so many people working in the gig economy and 
the taxes are so high on that and people have to pay for their own insurance like and you know for housing and for a car and all the other expenses that idea of saving for retirement seems so impossible and then oh my goodness yes but yeah. this whole affordable housing issue is bound up in a pretty much every every issue traffic and <clears throat> air pollution mm -hmm. and climate change issues and you know your social strata and how do you you know claw your way up to the next rung on the ladder and how do you do that when you got such a headwind of you know to get good work to get a career you virtually you have to have uh, you know you're we're a credential con credentialist society i mean that's you right you're working on your phd yeah i am <laughs> so you know what i'm talking about it's like uh this this uh roller coaster or would it be more like a hamster wheel roller coaster or hamster wheel you tell me <laughs> that's what you should title this article <laughs> yeah <laughs> this podcast episode oh gosh um can it be a roller coat? Can it be a hamster wheel on a roller coaster? <laughs> it's kind of like what you're strapped into and it's just going up and down. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, the story was really um, deep and interesting and well-sourced and there was a lot of information in there, <clears throat> but it's presented uh, very well. So I give you a lot of credit for that. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the tiny home yeah. situation and how that might work i see those uh like tiny home uh complex or development as being something similar to like cottages among the flowers or mallory way which you know were old motor courts back in the 20s and 30s but those have been relatively affordable housing options people in Ojai for a long time. I know uh, Steve Olson is a former city councilman and mayor. He grew up at cottages among the flowers mm -hmm. and he always always speaks very very warmly about that sense of community you get when you have a bunch of people living in relatively close proximity and they're all kind of looking out for each other and it's like a like an enhanced uh, village atmosphere. I wonder if that would be the same with a uh, tiny home development. Like if you had a setup, I know uh, Vina Lestato, who's the, a residential designer. I knew her a little bit. We did a story uh, for the Ojai Quarterly on her tiny home and her advocacy around it um, like four or five years ago. And uh, the engineering that goes along with just your motion, like you're, you know, going about just the motions of your life, the cooking, the cleaning, the sleeping, uh, whatever it is that you do, can be arranged, engineered very comfortably mm -hmm. in a small space. My favorite story, I don't know if I told you this before, but I'm a big fan of uh, Le Capuzier, this, this mm -hmm. uh, French French architect, actually Swiss. But he designed some of the largest public spaces in the world, the Hall of Soviets in Moscow, the Museum of Modern Art, and Tokyo, and then, was it Tokyo? I don't know, <clears throat> but in Japan. And then like the Gare du Nord train station and Paris, which is enormous. So that was his career. He was a big, you know, futurist about how people can live. And there's a lot of things I don't like about it. It's not very warm or organic. He thinks of 
people as almost like ants in a hive. Um, but you know, there's a lot of creativity that goes along with that when you get people in close proximity and they're like particles colliding with each other and you just don't know what, what's going to come of that. But when it came time for him to, sorry, I'll get, I'll get back to the point here pretty quick, but it's about tiny homes. But when he had his opportunity to build his masterwork on his own property for his retirement, he had a spectacular piece of land that was basically a cape with 270 degree views of the Mediterranean that was like some Roman senator, you know, uh, 2000 years ago, had first developed and was very grand, everything about it. When he built his house, he built a house that was like 12 foot by 14 foot. It was basically just a box with windows. And it was, it was made for him to be immersed in the space. Now, he didn't live there all the time. This is just like his weekend getaway place, and, you know, where he did spend a lot of time there. But isn't that interesting that the man who designed some of the largest public spaces in the world would choose a very tiny home for himself because he wanted to be as integrated with his environment as possible. And if you have a big palace, um, you're not going to you're not going to have that experience. But anyway, tiny homes might be a promising way to get around a lot of the issues because aren't they like 60 or $70,000 for, you know, basically if semi prefab, you just, you know, have most of it built off site and then uh, brought in and, and uh, hooked up and put on a pad and, you know, they're very attractive. Uh, they're very, uh, functional. I don't know. What What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few visions shared with me. Um, so Bill Miley presented on um, like smaller modular units that can range in square footage from between like three ninety nine to six hundred square feet, and their prices price prices range between about forty to sixty thousand dollars. And then also Vina's vision um, revolved more around tiny homes as you're describing. And yeah, she also describes them as very affordable and uh, ranging between, yeah, about $65,000 to $85,000. Vina envisioned this sort of community of tiny homes where similar to what you were uh, like saying earlier, you know, you'd have people who would contribute to this sort of more communal lifestyle via their talents. So, you know, certain people might do uh, more of the cooking, other people would be the artisans, um, and the the use of natural resources would, tr- tr- like the priority would be to mostly harvest those locally. So like stormwater catchments, uh, solar panels, uh, bike and car shares. And I think it's a wonderful vision, um, the attainability of it with uh, existing sort of local and regional codes and also the availability of land to support this type of um yeah. housing would I, yeah i don't think it would require any major structural adjustments or to do a lot of legislation i think you can pretty much get to where you, you need to go with these um smaller home developments and common spaces and that just with the the co the planning codes that we already have well, I had heard uh, 
while doing this, while doing the interviews for this article that uh, current codes within the city limits have a limit on the number of basically like homes that can exist on a one acre property. So at least within the city, it would be more difficult unless there were revisions, but within the county, I'm not sure. Um, There is more hope though from the activists I talked to for this type of um, community style. And there's a lot of interest in it too. Um, But I think it's also worthwhile to point out. And as you've been, been saying too, with conversations about sort of like the leading thinkers um, back several decades, conversations around um, the the actual like physical manifestation of, of affordable housing can take so many different forms. And what I, what I highlight in this article is just like some of the, the snags that I was able to, you know, get a hold of, but there's so many different ideas out there and they keep changing with the technology that's available. And in some ways I, I would actually say that the, the engineering and the visions are way ahead of the policies, you know, yes. so like bureaucracy takes so long to catch up to like where people's like possibilities and imaginations are at. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. The visions outstrip the, the legislative structure or permissions. And that's mm-hmm. just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the politics is always struggling to, to catch up. Always oh, struggling to catch up. Now, I I have a test for a successful neighborhood, one where uh, people are, you know, are, uh, you know, sense of community, and that's the trick or treat test. Is your neighborhood a place where kids go to trick or treat? Hmm. And I think if you think about it, that's a perfect, um, perfect uh, metric, or perfect. A heuristic for a neighborhood that's successful because you know it's got to be safe it's got to be relatively well lit it's got to be compact people have to be living you know relatively closely together there's going to be a mix of generations uh, you're going to have young kids <clears throat> you're going to have uh, older people as well grandkids and uh, people that come come into your neighborhood from outside. And we have a few of those neighborhoods in Ohio. I think like behind Vaughn's, Valerio, Mm -hmm. even up into like uh, Termina, which is interesting, a little sub-community. And then uh, where else? Like uh, Golden West. You bet you grew up here. Where would you go trick-or-treat when you were a kid? Yeah, no, you have me thinking about all the places I went as a kid. So I I um, grew up on the corner of Grand and Signal. They've since developed that little field that I used to have my like fairy fort in yeah. um, where my friends and I would play a good time. Yeah, so I would go when I was really young up uh, where Topa Topa is. Uh, oh, and then when school, I Topa Topa Elementary School. Yeah. yeah up uh, daily. Yeah. Daily and pleasant and i don't remember no i can't never i can never remember the names of the streets till i see them but i know where you're talking about sure yeah that whole area sort of gridley and um yeah i'm also bad with street names sometimes anyway i used to go up there and then when i was 13 my mom and i moved to golden west so there was a house in that neighborhood that always used to set up um, a haunted house in their backyard it was so much fun Uh we'd go there and then you know, once you're a teenager, 
Uh, you either go with friends. So I, I had a couple Halloweens where we just or like hung more out at a friend's house. And That's what I remember. Yeah, just exactly. Yeah. There's a certain age where, um, why about go around all these homes and get candy when you can just beat up some of these little kids and take theirs? No, I'm just kidding. I would know. No, no, no. Never you know, happened. I'm the throwing the punches kind, you know, <laughs> Brett. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. We did some pranking, but nothing, uh, you know, we were not uh, beating up on the younger kids. Even though my older cousins would beat up on us when, you know, they felt like they had free reign to uh, take us down when when we were, uh, you know, 8, 10, and they were like 12, 14. It seems like they're grownups when you're that young, but they're not. They're just hoodlums. No, those were my Yeah, cousins. that's it. They, they think they're becoming so mature, but. Yeah. So tell me uh, a little right bit now. more about yourself. You went to Nordoff. I know you were involved in uh journalism program there and that you sort of kept that up you've written a few stories for us you uh, did a, a quite a bit at the newspaper while you were still in high school so you're mm -hmm. you're kind of like a tracy flick character did you ever see that movie election that uh, i haven't Alexander Payne should i add it to my list with reese witherspoon it's like one of the first things she ever did reese witherspoon and matthew broderick you should definitely put that on your list if you haven't seen it you must now, I don't see you really oh. as a Tracy Flick type, but there are some traits that you share. And I think you'll really like that movie because it's well, funny. Thanks. I'll definitely do that. And also, you know, I met Reese Witherspoon once in Ohio. Really? At the farmer's market? At, um, in Rains. I was working, doing bagging during the gift season there. Oh, yeah. And Your, uh, she came in with her. Like, right? She does. Yeah. yeah Carol. Carol Kay. Yeah, Carol Kay. Yeah, she's a wonderful person. Yes, she's she's famous for her her being sweet. Yeah. So anyway, you were um, uh, meeting Reese at Rains. Yeah, I was um, standing there with uh, one of the other ladies that works there, Susan, and I, I didn't recognize Reese Witherspoon. You know, she had like the dark sunglasses well, on and so a scarf petite. and a. Oh, she's so it's true she's so small but you know my mom's also petite i don't like, think much of it you know like we're all short um i'm relatively short and you know i, I didn't i just thought wow it must be cold outside you know big scarf uh -oh. and hat and she buys this 900 hundred dollar blender she and her famous person actor she just married and they leave and then and susan looks over at me he's like pulling on my sleeve like did you recognize who that was <laughs> no that was Reese Witherspoon. It was such a quintessential Ojai moment, yeah. you know. It's like, yeah, so many famous people come through, and you don't always recognize that. I know. I've had a lot of sightings. I won't go into it, but I think my favorite yeah. was at Ojai Day, and it was Emily Blunt with a bunch of her mm. friends. I think a few of them I recognized. There were like four or five of them, and they were just having such a great time, and they had all their adorable little outfit flirting with me and i was just like loving it and they were just like a cluster of these pretty little birds you know floating around through oh hi day and i just like oh, wow that's that's i love that she's so sweet they don't live here anymore her and john krasinski but uh or maybe they moved back i don't know but that's one of the 
things that's going on in Ohio, you know, is not the celebrification that's been here for years, but there's a lot of turnover since the pandemic. A lot of people are bugging mm-hmm. out of the cities, coming to Ohio. And story, I think Eric Wild at Live Sotheby's mm-hmm. mentioned that or made mention of that fact. And I, what do you what do you remember, or what what do you think about that, or what are your observations? Yeah, Eric, uh, in his interview with me, talked about how right now you're seeing people who actually have job security, often those who can, who aren't, I don't want to say who aren't providing essential services, but those who have the ability to work remotely are able to, like, if they have a good internet connection, move anywhere. And a lot of them are moving to lifestyle areas, Um, especially because, you know, their job might've bound them in LA or San Francisco or like another city where they might not have wanted to be to begin with, but they had to be there for their good paying jobs. So now they're uprooting and going to places like Ojai, like cities in Colorado. Um, yeah, I have a friend in Idaho said that was happening from people from both Seattle and Spokane or Spokane are moving into this yep. rural area in Idaho. I mean, you, it doesn't take a lot to move the needle when you only have, I don't even remember what it is now, 17 or 1800 active occupied households in Ohio, something like 72, 73 or 400. And, uh, and then you only have like 50 or 60 for sale on a market. The inventory is very tight. But what happens is those homes sell so fast Prices go up a little bit, and then another batch of people thinks, oh, maybe this is a good time. So there's a lot of mobility going on now. I think the people that I've spoken to got got locked into a pandemic in in the city, and I hear it all the time. People that I talk to or stories that are going on that they're just open spaces and they get a bit of that uh, pink. In places like Ojai, you know, they're going to, we're going to have a, a new crop of people. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, still here. Yeah. Still I, I wanted to add that. Yeah. My phone just said uh, something about. No, it's still it's still recording. I think we just had a little little blurp in our uh, our connection. It's fine now. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You no, Scott, I heard a little like beep or something too. Anyway, um, yeah, I wanted to add that. Yeah, to directly what you're saying, like people really covet um, like lifestyle areas, and I personally have, <laughs> I've been saying in conversations with friends that um, this move of people who have these more remote jobs to more rural areas was inevitable. Um, you know, I think like you're seeing a major transition right now within our economy and the job sector. I read a statistic statistic at one point, you have to fact check me on this, that about one third of all jobs in the, within the United States will be remote by the year 2030. You know, so I'm sorry, one in three. That's what I read. One in three jobs will be remote by the year yeah. 2030. And you know, it, it only takes something like a pandemic for, I mean, be it, these are very extreme circumstances, but, you know, this type of um, crisis requires 
immediate flexibility and um, reactivity where you're going to see companies trying to be innovative in the way that they can maintain their infrastructure while still being apart. And, you know, it comes yeah. in the form of like Zoom meetings and us doing this interview over laptops, even though we're like relatively near each other because we all want to be safe. And, but it also makes possible a re reconfiguration of, or sort of like a rethinking about the ways that we can still make money and have a growing economy. You know, it's, I think this is also, I think this is really an opportunity for us to be thinking about what kind of future do we want? How do we want to relate to each other in this age of technology? And what does it make possible for conversations that are more con that have more concrete outputs like affordable housing, you know, because especially when you have a lot of people who are moving sure. into town and, you know, you have Eric Wilde telling me that nearly all of the homes in town right now cost more than a million dollars and you need a six figure income to afford it, you know? Yeah. The ones that are for sale. Yeah. That are for sale. Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, a bit uh, a shift a big shift i'm i'm not surprised at all to hear that a third of jobs will be remote and i my my son is still on just not not 30 yet he works in, in an office with 600 wow. people they had a confirmed case early he got sick a lot of his his people did but it's a sales office for postmates uh, food delivery service and their business took yeah. off really really took off just as we were going into and and because of the pandemic and they got to have everybody working from home and they don't really have any plans to get people back into the office for a while they're doing their everyone's remote 600 people that would have been working in that office and they built a big fancy new office in Nashville that they haven't been able to move into. But that's the hope that, you know, this will be second quarter of 2021 mm. uh, before they'll even have a plan to, to move back in. And I think a lot of those people, if you're going to be working from home, why shouldn't at home be in Ojai rather than some apartment building in downtown Los Angeles where, you know, you're packed uh, on top of each other. Yeah. I think that's part that's driving a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I um two things to say. So Eric Wilde told me about um the CEO of a like, relatively small tech company of around a hundred and some employees who was basically dissolving the actual location of his tech company. And he told all of his workforce, I will keep you all employed. All of you move wherever you want, you know, as long as you put in the hours that you're supposed to, you will still have a job. And he's not going back to a physical office and he's moving his family to, that CEO is moving his family, was thinking yes. about moving his family to Ohio. So pretty common the story. Schools are a big draw for people as well. People come mm, the Private school. schools are public too. It's making the housing even less affordable. When you have people mm -hmm. live anywhere, uh, it's going to drive up the cost of housing even, f even further. Most likely, I don't know.
Are you still there? I'm still here. Yeah, you have me thinking about. Oh, okay. um, yeah, like friends, like some yeah, of my I just friends. Saw there was a connection issue for a second. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's okay. No, some of my friends have uh, recently gotten married or engaged, and they're looking to buy homes in town and have complained to me that it's just not affordable. Uh, they saw pre and post uh, March when the stay at home order was issued by Governor Newsom a jump in the the price of rentals. So. Yeah. Interestingly, when ironically, when people have lost their jobs and I feel like in the economy, the other shoe hasn't uh, dropped yet. It just feels like the stock market is going up so high and we still have 30 plus million people unemployed. It doesn't square. Something is amiss. And I don't know what that is or how that's going to shake out, but I, we haven't we have not seen the last of the economic impacts of this pandemic. No, I agree with you. I, and, I, uh, yeah. Your your friends, your young families trying to get a foothold. Um, it's just very very challenging. Uh, what do you think that could be done? Would it be require some organizing? Would it require people like you're talking about to to form groups and start lobbying? you know, the city and the county for the kind of uh, affordable housing projects that would benefit them and, and everyone, really, because, you know, I keep going back to the people can work where they live. Everything benefits, even down to, like, your youth sports teams and uh, satisfaction of um, having multiple generations living in close proximity and so, so many things but yeah what do you how do you think how we could how do you think we could make this make this yeah better? first step is to have open conversation so that's like kind of the note that's the note that i end the article on is just ha- let's as a community yeah have, the con that's in fact that's the subtitle right is having a yeah conversation. yeah absolutely um you know i'm gonna i can sort of summarize the calls to action that I heard from the interviews, but there's so many other ideas and lived experiences of, of our community that we haven't heard yet. And I would love to see, you know, more articles out and Facebook posts and just conversations in town to talk was that have to do with this. So there's that. I think one of them would be um, to actually have developers, um, if you're out there, uh, you know, to come forward to the city and actually attempt an affordable housing um, deal, including maybe like realizing Nicholas Oway's vision um, and like having more money put behind that, um, you know, because nothing can really be done if the the sort of the dollar to back it up isn't there. Uh, another way would, you know, yeah. if affordable housing options do come forward. Um, I think people should kind of reflect on like, you know, if their immediate reaction is to say, no, like, I don't want this in my backyard, sort of like check, check that attitude and, and think about the larger picture of, um, who that affordable housing unit could serve. Um, so that's another one. I think, you know, rent stabilization yeah, it's measures. Complicated, yeah. It? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the interventions have to be done from a state and national level, you know, making sure that incomes 
keep um, pace with inflation, making sure that rent is actually affordable, rent stabilization policies in place. I mean, having, you know, pauses on evictions during emergency, you know, crises like now are really important. And it's so tough because, yeah, uh, yeah, I know a lot of, a lot of people that are struggling to make rent, but also who are, you know, the landlords are in the same situation. It's really hard. It's uh, really, really, really mm-hmm. tough. So I'm curious about you. I mean, you're still around Ojai. You <clears throat> have gone out into the world in this very top-notch academic fashion. You're working on your PhD. What What is your thesis again? Just real quick. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I'll provide the caveat that I'm only in the, I'm just beginning the second year of my uh, doctorate. I'm currently at, uh, I'm doing my doctorate in the environmental studies program at UC Santa Cruz under Dr. Flora Liu. Uh, I'm going to be focusing on the equitable implementation of the 2014 Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Um, so SIGMA. And I'm really curious to think about how okay. uh, basins along the central coast of California, and I'm considering sort of like Ojai or Oxnard, Ventura, regions as one of the case studies I could use to think about how um, regional agencies are forming their groundwater sustainability agencies as a requirement of Sigma, and how are they getting all water users involved in the creation of what's called uh, groundwater sustainability plans. So are they doing it in an equitable manner? Are they actually employing participatory governance models to do so? And how are the sort of historic land development sort of uses of land and policies hindering or making... Is that the Williamson Act as part of that? I don't know. That would be something for me to have to look yeah, up. Yeah, I won't get into that. I just think Williamson Act, uh, it's like, you know, protect agricultural mm-hmm. land with, with tax, break, tax breaks. But agricultural oh, yeah. land, water use is, you know, those are... Those are key users, and Ojai is like I'd hate to see us lose our orchards. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of our charm, and those orange blossoms. But just you know, the uh, the ranchers, the citrus farmers—I like how they call them ranchers. They are not just essential to Ojai and the jobs and everything else, but they protect the open space. And that includes not just from developments and such, but from fires. That's like a green belt. There's a lot of issues that go on around that that are really deep and deep and fascinating. Yeah, I did this whole article a couple of years ago on um, possible solutions to or like methods to reduce um, like fire damage since we're going to see more fires uh, due to climate change. Um, well, climate change is a big yeah, right cause, I but story, sure. yeah. So, yeah, I think what you raise is like there's a need to protect agricultural land, but it's become increasingly hard when the, you know, making money off of that is like becoming really difficult, and then you add on top of that water scarcity, um, which is also being exacerbated by climate change related phenomena. So, yeah, it's just a very complex puzzle, and. You also a lot of see a rise parts, in a lot of interlocking. Oh parts. yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Well, you got your work cut out for you. Sounds like Michelina. 
Oh, I'll be busy for several years, but I'm, I'm always hoping to maintain, you know, a very intimate connection to Ojai and think about sort of like water security here, you know, social issues, you know, I, I sort of bounce back and forth between like the Bay and Ojai and I'm constantly thinking across the landscapes and, and yeah. I'm always grateful for opportunities to talk about these issues because yeah, the, and I think the more, cabinet, yeah. Uh, those differences of perspectives can uh, benefit both. You can bring a fresh set of eyes to, you know, situations in the Bay Area and here in Ojai. Uh, it's interesting to me because you're a local product. Um, you probably couldn't wait to get out of Ojai when you were a teenager. And now, That's true. <laughs> now you see that you and a lot of your peers are thinking about, well, where do I want to raise my family? Where do I want to have a family? Where do I want to raise that family? And yeah. then uh, you start thinking about Ojai in a completely different way. All of a sudden, it's not such a boring old town. It's uh, boring in exactly the right way for, for raising the family. Keep Ojai Lane. I love those bumper stickers. Yeah, there. I yeah, it 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 kind of captures this. Uh, um, I always laugh at them when I see them because yeah, my my perspective has totally changed. And also for me, um, another element to that is this is where my family is. You know what I mean? It's like this certain, it's a connection to place with a recognition that like my grandfather started, my great grandfather started the Ohio Valley news. And like my family's been here for like my, my contacts and references are here. So I, I feel such a, like I am so motivated by this, this need to connect our local problems to larger conversations and to, to think sort of holistically about, um, change making and a building of community in place that's done in a very sort of ethical, thoughtful way. And um, yeah, I think as, as I've gotten older, all of those elements kind of tie in with each other. Like I start to confront new life stages and I think about the barriers and possibilities that are made possible because of the way that a certain community is structured the policies that are in place there, the type of community that's available. Um, yeah, it all definitely ties in with each other. Yeah. And what is your career goal? Like, how do you, what's, uh, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I have decided, one of my friends told me that we, we are always, you know, kids, we just get bigger. Um you know, we never fully grow up. I totally agree with that. I just, I'm constantly amazed at how like complex the world is and my sort of like constant state of awestruck yeah. never leaves. Um, well, I can tell you yeah, as uh, really... somebody of certain uh, accumulation of years that uh, you're going to end up knowing less as you get older. You're going to have a wider base of knowledge, but the things that you know for certain, all that certainty that, that you you have when you're younger it starts to evaporate especially about the time you start having kids but i'm sorry go go what uh, you didn't really answer the question yet what do you what do you what's your career goal First how do you see yourself so in 10 years or whatever yeah in 10 years um hopefully i've done a marathon by then no let's see here um i i always write this in grants and like personal statements for my phd program i want to be a professor at a csu or a uc one day nice. and you know so that's a goal right that's definitely there but but basically i see myself more driven by um sort of like the principles that i want to live out in my life so i want to have a commitment to education to translating science to the public 
um, to, you know, I'd like to have a family. I'd like to have that sort of, um, Kind of lifestyle. Yeah, a unit. Yes. But like in community, you know, I think a lot of what I write about are principles that I want to live out in my life and continue to um, write and grow with the conversations. So I try to pick career paths that can pivot me in that direction. And I hope that whatever profession I choose has an educational component, it has a community facing component, and it always enables me to engage in these really dynamic, interesting, and impactful conversations. It's kind of my... Wow. That's, that's very well put. Well, um, I, you've been very generous with your time. I'll, I'll wrap this up. But I just want to say we're rooting for you, and it's a pleasure working with you. And I urge everyone to check out uh, Michelina Johnson's story and this uh, new issue of Ojai Quarterly, which is out on the stands now. And uh, thank you. It was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks, Brett. This is wonderful. And I hope that this article and podcast and everything can get people talking about affordable housing. <laughs> yeah. Even if we yeah. don't do anything, at least we can jibber jabber. Uh, it does right, something. Well, yeah. No, there's a lot of great information in that story. I urge everyone to check it out. You put in a lot of work there, and I'm very pleased that we were able to find a home for it. Yeah. So, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank wonderful. you very much. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Michelina. Just thinking out loud, in my conversation with Michelina Johnson, we touched at some length on this pandemic-related phenomenon of people moving from the city to the country to the rural areas, which is going on all across the country, but especially in Ojai, where we're less than an hour and a half away from a major metropolitan area like Los Angeles. It's an understandable impulse. People want open space, especially when they've been cooped up. And we welcome our newest residents to our beautiful community and hope they roll up their sleeves and get involved. My one concern, however, is that the lack of affordable housing is being exacerbated by the wealth of these new residents and the prices that they're able to afford. So that many people are being priced out of their slice of the Ojai dream. This, I hope, gives us further motivation to figure out this naughty, persistent problem. In any event, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.